Good morning, everyone. It's a joy and a privilege to be with you all. I invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, to 1 John chapter 1, or you can, of course, uh, it's printed for you in your bulletin if you would like to just look there, but 1 John chapter 1. First John chapter 1, I'll be reading the first four verses. This is God's infallible word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that as we come before your word at this time, uh, that you would impress upon us the urgency of paying careful attention to the reading of it and the preaching of it, that we would attend to your word with all of the diligence that you expect and require of us. Lord, for this is not the word of man, this is not my word. This is not even merely the word of the Apostle John, as great as he was. This is your word, Lord, to us, to your people today, in this very moment, this morning. And so by your Spirit, Lord, would you open our hearts to receive your word of truth, build us up in our most holy and precious faith, encourage us, shine the light of your truth in our hearts that we might grasp the height and depth and breadth of your love for us in Christ Jesus. And we pray all of this in his precious name. Amen. Well, to become a member of this congregation, you have to be able to explain uh, a few things about the gospel, right? You have to be able to know a few things, at least about Jesus, who he is and what he came to do, what he accomplished in this world, what his mission was. And no, this doesn't mean that you have to be a trained seminarian or a published theologian, but if you claim Christ as your only hope of salvation, you should be able to articulate the basics of the gospel. Who is he? What did he do? What did he do for you specifically? And yet there are many in the church at large who can't do this, even though they identify as Christians. They'll say, I'm a Christian. Then you ask them, well, what does that mean? And they say, well, it means that I follow Jesus. Well, who was Jesus but why is he so special? And that question right there is where you would get a multitude and a variety of answers. Uh, there's Jesus, the, the spiritual revolutionary, who came to teach us new religious insights, which are sure to deepen your own spiritual journey. There's Jesus, the social revolutionary, who came to promote social justice and peace and equality. Uh, there's Jesus, the moral revolutionary, who came to teach us how to live a good life, a life that would be worthy of God's favor. There's Jesus, the political revolutionary, who came to lead the charge against the Romans and show us how we can also rebel 
against our governments. There's Jesus the Republican, Jesus the Democrat, Jesus the Socialist, Jesus the Capitalist. When asked to explain who Jesus is and what he was about, these are often the kinds of things that you hear from many who self-identify as Christians. And what these responses reveal is man's tendency to shape Jesus into his own image, to suit his own desires and agenda. It's like that old Burger King slogan, have it your way. Uh, sinners want Jesus their way, but a Jesus who's been created in our image, friends, is a Jesus who simply does not exist. He's not the Jesus revealed to us in the written word of God. He's not the Jesus unveiled to us by the Apostle John in these first four verses of his first letter. That is John's concern right here in the beginning of this letter. He wants to show us, you see, he wants to show us the real Jesus, not one that's been conjured up by our imagination or one that's been invented really by the false teachers that he is writing against. Uh, his aim is to give us the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ, because it's only through this gospel that sinners like you and like me can have fellowship with the living God. That is the apostle's objective in this text, to give us the gospel so that we who have the truth about who Jesus is, why he came, and why we need him can enter into fellowship with him. And the first thing John does is establish that the gospel that's recorded in Scripture is the reliable and authoritative eyewitness testimony of the apostles. I know that's a mouthful. It's in your, your bulletin this morning written down for you, but that is exactly what the apostle is saying. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now notice how John writes all of this from a first-hand perspective. Uh, this is an eyewitness testimony that includes him, but not only him. He uses the plural, we, to signal that he's speaking on behalf of a group of people. Who's he speaking on behalf of? Well, the other apostles. This is the personal account of those Chosen select few who walked with Jesus, who walked with the word of life and witnessed his miracles and his ministry firsthand. The Lord, uh, we know, has given us our senses so that we can interact with each other, so that we can interact in a meaningful way with the world around us in which we live. Well, John uses, you've noticed, all of this sens sensory language to corroborate his firsthand account. He says the apostles are those who have heard Jesus' teaching. The message they proclaim and bear witness to is one they've heard over and over again from Jesus himself. They also say they saw Jesus with their own eyes. They bore witness to his miracles. They saw him heal lepers, uh, give sight to the blind, and make the lame walk. They saw him cast out demons and even raise the dead. They saw Jesus crucified, of course. They saw the empty tomb. And as we saw earlier in the passage, or in the service, even Thomas put his fingers in the holes in Jesus' hands because Thomas needed proof that this really was his crucified and risen Savior. They looked upon Jesus and touched with their own hands this word of life. 
In a similar way, I could ask, how do you know that I'm right here in this room preaching to you in this very moment? Well, you'd say, you can see me, right? You can hear me. After the service, you may shake my hand, which confirms that I'm actually here, and this is not some hologram or some mirage or high-tech projection of me. Well, John is saying the same thing here about Jesus. He and the other apostles had an in-person relationship with Christ. They experienced him and his ministry through their senses, and their eyewitness accounts had been recorded and preserved for us as holy scripture. John gave us his gospel. We also have the gospel of Matthew, another apostle. We have the gospels of Mark and of Luke, who were missionary companions of the apostles, who wrote under the apostles' supervision and authority. And so these gospels are what you call primary sources. And we value primary sources, don't we? There's a car accident. Often the police will interview bystanders who witnessed the crash. Why? Because they have first-hand knowledge of the event, and they tend to be more objective than the drivers themselves. I think also of how important witnesses are in a court of law. They're called to testify to their knowledge of the defendant, their knowledge of the plaintiff, and the events surrounding the case. In so many ways, we, we use and we value primary sources, and this is why John labors in these opening verses to explain that he and the other apostles are in fact primary sources of information about Jesus. He says at the end of his gospel, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. The apostolic testimony recorded in the gospels and in the letters of the New Testament is the trustworthy the credible and the reliable account of who Jesus is and what he did while he walked this earth. And what's more is that it's an authoritative account. John here is invoking his apostolic authority as another reason to believe his eyewitness testimony. By invoking his authority, the authority of a man, he's not negating here the divine inspiration of Scripture as if his authority supersedes God's authority. No, Scripture is God's self-revelation. The Bible bears ultimate authority over us and over all human beings because the words in your Bible are not merely the words of a man, but the word of God. Everything penned by the apostles finds its origin in the mind of the Lord. And so when John invokes his authority here as a reason to trust his message, what he's doing is speaking out of his office as an apostle. The apostles were eyewitnesses of the risen and glorified Christ, and they were specifically chosen by the risen and glorified Christ to be his agents of special revelation. They were the human authors who would write down the word of the Lord, as Peter says, They were carried along by the Spirit as they wrote, such that their writings bear the authority of God himself. They're the eyewitness testimonies of those whom Jesus not only knew, but personally called and authorized to record his word. As Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, he says, And you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And so, yes, the the personal apostolic witness to Jesus Christ, preserved in the Bible, is both reliable and authoritative. 
because of the apostle's special calling and office in the church. That is what John is trying to get across here. This is so important to grasp because in our day, there are many non-Christian writers who publish books, who publish articles in Time magazine, National Geographic, for instance, claiming to have uncovered the real Jesus, the historical Jesus. You see this kind of thing, don't you, often during the Christmas season or Easter uh, you go to the grocery store and at the checkout lane, they always have the magazine stand, and there's Time magazine on the cover. Who is the real Jesus? Well, there's this assumption that the picture that the Bible gives of you about Jesus is not the real picture. You need someone other than an apostle to tell you the truth. Those who publish these kinds of articles and books operate from a naturalistic worldview, one that denies God and denies supernatural realities. And so their starting point is that the Bible doesn't give us an accurate picture of Jesus. That's what they presuppose. And so if you want to know the real Jesus, you've got to go to them. You've got to trust what they say, these secondary and even tertiary sources, these unbelievers who weren't alive at the time that Jesus walked the earth. Don't, don't do a foolish thing like Trust the writings of the apostles who claim to have personally known Jesus and talked with them, ate with him, witnessed his miracles, his death, resurrection, ascension, all those things. No, don't trust those ancient texts and those firsthand accounts. Instead, listen to me. A modern authority and all things about Jesus in the Bible. It's pretty ridiculous if you think about it because there's no other situation in which someone would follow this kind of advice. If you wanted to get an accurate account of a historical event or a historical situation like American slavery, for instance, you can certainly read the perspectives of contemporary historians, but those are not a replacement for the writings of people like Frederick Douglass or Booker T. Washington, people who actually lived the event. Real historians would base their conclusions on those primary sources and first-hand accounts. Under no other circumstances would any rational person dismiss primary sources in favor of those that are far removed from the event or far removed from the people they're talking about. And so why then do people approach the Bible with such a critical and irrational mindset? It's because the Bible is not like any other book, is it? It says things about us, it says things about Jesus, about God, that we naturally find offensive. Those who approach the Bible with a critical mindset do so because at the core of the sinner's heart is a desire to rule one's own life and not submit to an authority greater than himself, an authority that he knows exists but continues to deny, to reject, and to suppress and unrighteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says there, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And in Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Why do people reject the clear eyewitness testimony of the apostles that's recorded in the Bible in favor of these alternative theories of the so-called real Jesus. 
Well, it's because unbelievers are actively set against the truth and the God who is the truth. Their minds are polluted and darkened and blinded by sin and haven't been awakened to the truth by the regenerating power of the Spirit. It really is that simple. The gospel recorded in Scripture is the reliable and authoritative eyewitness testimony of the apostles such that you can't know the real Jesus apart from their writings. We haven't seen Jesus in the flesh. We have not witnessed his miracles like John did or like Doubting Thomas. But the good news is that seeing is not always believing. We don't need to see Jesus in order to believe in him, in order to know him. We will see him one day, but we do not need to see him now to truly know him and experience his saving grace. Why? Because we have the apostolic message, which isn't only the testimony of the apostles, but ultimately the testimony of Jesus about himself. And so the first emphasis of our passage is on the apostolic witness to Christ. The apostles heard and saw the real Jesus. They were appointed to write about him, and their message has been preserved by God supernaturally and handed down to us. And so we have their message, but it's not enough to just have their message. We need to know what the message is. What does it say? What's so important and so urgent that we need to pay attention to these ancient writings of John and of the other apostles? That's the second emphasis of our text, the content of the gospel, the content of this message. John says quite plainly that the content of his gospel message centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He calls Jesus the word of life and says that this word was manifested to him. And the apostles referring to Christ's incarnation and his physical appearance. And so the word of life is both a message and a person. It's a message about a person, but not just any person. At the heart of the gospel message is the person of God the Son. And now we certainly don't trust and worship the Son to the exclusion of the Father and the Spirit, but when we're talking about the heart of the gospel, we recognize that Scripture itself places a special emphasis upon the Son. As John himself says in verse 2, the word of life, referring to Jesus, was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. This corresponds to what he writes in the prologue of his gospel. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so both in his gospel and in these first four verses, John is telling his readers that the pre-incarnate Son, who's of one essence with the Father, became embodied in human flesh. The word of life became incarnate. Paul agrees with John as he says in Colossians that in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is the unified claim of the apostles, preserved in their writings and passed down through the ages to us, that in Jesus Christ, God has revealed himself to humanity. If you want to know the truth about God, you must look to the God-man Due to the historical problems that he's dealing with, much of John's focus in this letter is on 
uh, Christology, which is the doctrine of Christ. And it all begins right here in the first few verses where he underscores both the, the deity and the humanity of Christ. He tells us that, that Jesus isn't a myth. He's not the main character of some folk tale. He's a real historical figure who was seen, who was heard, who was touched by many. The apostle is, is setting the stage for what's to come later in his letter when he directly addresses his opponents who denied that Jesus actually came in the flesh. In his day, just as in ours, there were those who claimed to have discovered the real Jesus. But John exposes and even condemns them and does all he can to warn us of the dangers of these kinds of heresies. Jesus is the Christ, he says, the Son of God who became man, and of this he and many others are eyewitnesses. But interestingly, unlike John's opponents, many people today don't have a problem acknowledging Christ's humanity. They don't have a problem saying that Jesus was an actual person who lived. Even atheists will admit the undeniable fact that Jesus existed in time and in space and history. Uh, the evidence for this, even outside the Bible, is overwhelming, such that to deny it is akin to denying the existence of other historical figures like Plato or Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great. Uh, so it's not really the humanity or, or the, the historicity of Jesus Christ that's so often attacked today. It's his divinity that comes under fire. Jesus was a spiritual person, sure. But God? I don't know about that. And I alluded to the reason for this earlier in the sermon. Uh, to admit that Jesus is God changes absolutely everything. It changes your whole life. Uh, nothing can be the same. It can't be. You can't acknowledge the deity of Christ and just go about living your days as you always have. The deity of Christ is a truth that forever alters the trajectory of your life. Because by admitting that Jesus is God, what are you doing? You're admitting that you're not. Right there is where we discover why so many people deny the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ is an affront to human pride. And pride is at the core of today's religion of secular humanism. Uh, to secularize something is to basically to empty it of any spiritual and supernatural realities. And that society is humanistic means man is, is elevated in place of God. And so secular humanism just think God is dethroned and man is enthroned. That's a simple definition. Uh, today, human beings, we know, are thought to be the center of existence. And we see the the devastating consequences of this idea in so many ways. Uh, truth and morality and reality are all said to be determined by one's feelings. Uh, but the point is that the religion of secular humanism is totally hostile to the gospel of the apostles that says Jesus isn't just human, but divine. This is what the church has always confessed. In the Nicene Creed, we confess this, don't we? That Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. It's easy to just recite those words of the creed without giving it much thought. But when you speak these words, you are making a radical claim that dramatically offends natural human sensibilities. You're declaring that you are not the Lord of your life. 
You're declaring that your rights are not ultimate. You're declaring that your authority is limited. You're saying that you are not on the throne. That no, you in fact do not run the show of your life. That you don't exist for yourself. But that you exist to glorify and enjoy the Lord forever. That's what it means to believe and confess the apostolic message that Jesus Christ is God. The focal point of the gospel that John is so concerned to get across for us is that the Son of God was manifested in human flesh and dwelt among us. And he tells us the reason that this is such good news. Notice how he calls Jesus the word of life and eternal life. He mentions in verse 3 that the apostles proclaim this eternal life also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, what John is doing here is identifying the greatest need that all human beings have, which is to have eternal life and fellowship with God. Because of sin, the human heart is naturally turned away from God and turned towards self such that we don't live for him, but we live for ourselves and our own happiness. I mean, look around you and you see people everywhere who are enslaved to created things, who desperately search in this world under through any means possible for purpose and, and for life and for meaning, but they never truly find what they're looking for, do they? Why? Because God did not make this world or anything in the world, to be a replacement for himself. To live for and worship perishable things is the height of folly, and yet that's what the depraved human heart does. In our natural condition, we are dead to the things of God, alienated from the life of God, totally opposed to the truth of God. We're hostile to the holiness of God, unwilling to submit to the law of God, and happily marching down that broad road of destruction that leads only to the wrath of God. That is the natural state of every human being, including each one of us. Sinners are those who've turned away from the Lord in pursuit of idols, who've rejected His glory for the sake of their own glory, His pleasure for the sake of our own pleasure, His authority for the sake of our own authority, and His way of living for the sake of our own way of living. As those who have offended him with our sin, we have broken fellowship with this God. Eternal life is in God, and yet the sinner in his natural state is outside of God, and therefore spiritually dead, and totally cut off from the source of life. For our rebellion, we have thrust ourselves under God's just judgment, which is carried out in hell a place of eternal death, a place of unending separation from the grace and the goodness of the Lord. It's not a popular message today. Many churches have stopped preaching this kind of message, one that centers on not only grace, but also sin, judgment, death, hell. Why? Because this is so countercultural. It offends modern ears. It's not welcoming. It is not seeker-friendly. But if you read the Gospels, you quickly see that Jesus was never concerned with being popular. He was never, uh, he never lost sleep over offending sinners. He never sought man's approval or acceptance. Instead, he was always concerned with the truth 
And the truth is that outside of his gracious intervention, we are hopelessly lost sinners who are in the hands of an angry God. But here in our text, John testifies and proclaims to you this morning, friends, the good news of the gospel. Like a, a herald, John is announcing to you this message of eternal life in Christ so that you would have fellowship with the apostles because their fellowship was with the Father and with his Son. In other words, the word of life was made manifest in this world for the purpose of securing for you, for sinners, eternal life and fellowship with God. The gospel is more about more than just escaping hell and escaping judgment. It's not just about what you're saved from. It's about what you're also saved into. Through Christ, you're saved into this bond of everlasting union and communion with the living God. But, but how did Jesus secure for us? How did he purchase for us so this, this wonderful gift, so great a gift through his own death, in which he offered himself up on the cross to satisfy God's justice for our sin? Jesus alone was uniquely qualified for this mission. As a man, he, he served as our human representative by bearing our sins and enduring in his body and his soul the wrath of God in our place. And yet, one who's only a man, who's a, a finite creature like us, can't truly satisfy the justice of an infinite God and therefore secure salvation for a multitude of sinners. The only one who can satisfy God's infinite justice is God himself. So it was necessary for Jesus also to be God so that he could offer up to his Father a sacrifice of infinite value that would pay off the immense debt of sin that we owe and that would forever extinguish the flames of the Father's judgment. And as he hung there on that cross, Jesus announced the finality and the sufficiency of his atoning work in those three famous words in which are contained the whole of the gospel, Jesus said, it is finished. The lamb without blemish was slain and a penalty for sins was paid. And yet, despite the necessity of the atonement, Jesus can't be the word of life, nor can he be the source of eternal life unless he first receives that life himself. In other words, our hope isn't only in a crucified Savior, but a risen Savior. And the one who's overcome death, who himself entered into the fullness of life and fellowship with God. Only the one who is the resurrection and the life can raise the dead to life. The Christ of the apostles, the Christ of Christianity is the resurrected and ascended king who invites sinners into life-giving fellowship with himself and with his Father in heaven. But this is the gospel that was penned by the apostles and that's been entrusted to the church. This is the gospel that we're to carry to our neighbors, to our friends, to the nation. This is the gospel. That's the central subject of all true Christian preaching. This is the gospel that raises the dead, that converts sinners, that comforts the brokenhearted. This is the gospel that anchors the soul amid all of the troubles and challenges of life. The gospel announced to you in this passage is that eternal life and fellowship with God is found in Jesus Christ. That God becomes a father 
That's the language of our text, the Father, right? That God becomes a Father to those who trust in His Son tells you that fellowship with God is relational, that it's experiential. To have fellowship with God is to have God Himself. It's to have this this personal relationship with Him such that He is now your Father, that He has welcomed you into His family, a family that includes the apostles and all who have received Jesus in faith. To have fellowship with God is to have fellowship with His people across the ages. It's to be united to the church that's in heaven and the church on earth. If you're trusting in Christ, the Lord has taken ownership of you and he's made you his sons and daughters by sharing with you that life that is found in his only begotten son. Eternal life and fellowship with God is that great reward that was purchased by Jesus, which he then freely bestows upon sinners apart from our works so that we might come to know the joy of living in union with him. In this text, John sets Jesus before you in all of his glory. And he's issuing this personal invitation to to each person here to trust in and, and to rest upon the one who is the source of life and blessedness and communion with God. If anyone here does not believe in Jesus, this is an invitation to renounce your sin and place your trust in him alone for the only way to be reunited with God in fellowship is by faith in his Son. Jesus testified to this on many occasions, especially in John's own gospel. In John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And famously, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. These aren't only claims to deity. These are claims of exclusivity. Jesus is claiming to be the way, the truth, the life. Our culture is infatuated with the idea of being inclusive and accepting of all beliefs and values and behaviors and ways of life, but Jesus was radically exclusive He's no respecter of other religions and the idea that there are many paths to heaven. Today's popular spiritual gurus will tell you to look within yourself to discover truth. Look within yourself to find God. But if you follow that advice, you may as well be walking off of a cliff. You won't find God. You won't find truth, but you will find his judgment because outside of Christ, that is all there is. The God of truth and life is only found by looking outside of yourself to the Savior who was seen, who was heard, and proclaimed by the apostles. Jesus said in John 17, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so if you're to receive eternal life, if you're to come into unending fellowship with God, fellowship that transcends even death itself, you must come only through the Son. That is the message of the gospel. A message that on the one hand is very exclusive, and yet on the other hand is very inclusive because eternal life is offered to anyone and everyone. You just have to reach out and receive it in faith. Christ is the one in whom life and fellowship are found, and to receive this, 
You have to turn from your sins and trust in him alone. This is the invitation that John issues to the unbeliever. Repent and believe the gospel. And to you who have entered into this unbreakable bond of fellowship through the Son, John is also issuing an invitation to you this morning. Don't think you're off the hook, as if this text has nothing to say to you. This is an invitation to abide in the Son. Abide in the gospel, friends, that has been recorded in Scripture, the gospel that's been handed down to you by the apostles, for only by abiding in their message will you abide in fellowship with the Lord. Again, this text is written against the backdrop of false teaching that is ravaging the first century church. It's threatening to lead many sheep into apostasy. And there's much false teaching today that continues to assault God's people. The time does not permit me to dive into the particulars this morning, but John is saying that you can align yourself with the apostles or you can align yourself with the apostates. You can have fellowship with one or with the other, but you cannot have fellowship with both. And why would you choose the apostles over the apostates? John tells us. Because the apostles are those who are in fellowship with the Father and the Son. They present the true Jesus, whereas the apostates present a false Jesus. In the true Jesus is life and fellowship with God. In a false Jesus is only death and separation from God. There is great reward in following the apostles, but great danger in following the apostates. And so there's an implicit warning in our text to every believer, every single member of this congregation to not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that you hear, but to test the spirits. Test the spirits, everything that you hear from anyone and everyone, including me, test everything against the inspired and infallible written word of God. The word of God is not a, it's not static, it's dynamic, it's alive, because the God who authored it is alive. It's through the word of God that you hear the living and active voice of God. Jesus tells you in John 10 that when he speaks, his sheep hear and they recognize his voice. And they follow him. Where does Jesus speak to his sheep? Through the written word. It's through the scriptures that you encounter your good shepherd and sit at his feet to learn from him as a disciple from his master. And so the believer who is serious about abiding in Christ and keeping himself pure and unstained from the world, he's the one who lives in the scriptures and feeds upon every word that comes from the mouth of God. Persist in the teaching and doctrine of the apostles, knowing that it's not merely the words of men, but the living and active word of God through which he sanctifies you, through which he conforms you to his image, mind and heart to the image of Christ from one degree of glory, Paul says, to another. This, John says right there, this completes his joy. It brings him great joy knowing that the Christians he's invested in are persevering in the truth and holding fast to Jesus. I said this to my own congregation when I preached this sermon to them, and I know I can speak for Pastor Har in saying that we share John's sentiment here. Laboring as pastors is not an easy job, but it is a rewarding job, and hear me on this, friends, the greatest 
reward that you can ever give to your pastor is to follow Jesus to your dying breath. That's what I want from my congregation more than anything else. And I know that's what Pastor Har wants from you. More important than, than your physical health, your financial needs, or your relational issues, as great as those things might be, more important than those is that each one of you here this morning abides in fellowship with Jesus Christ. That is our great concern. And that is why we labor as Christ's under-shepherds. And so, brothers and sisters, in closing, complete your pastor's joy by seeking Jesus, by feeding upon his word, by holding to the apostolic witness, by continuing in the faith, and by maintaining your good confession of Jesus Christ to the very end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we give you praise for the truth of your word, the truth that uncovers our sin, that doesn't leave us comfortable. Lord, as you've done this morning, you've shown us through this text that we, outside of Christ, are lost and rebellious sinners in the hands of an angry and just God, and yet you also show us your rich provision in Jesus Christ, that he is, in fact, the word of life, the source of eternal life, and you beckon us to come to repent, to turn to him, not just one time, but to keep doing that, Lord, every single day to abide in fellowship with him, to guard ourselves, Lord, by persisting in what you have handed down to us through the apostles. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be simply a people of the book, a people of your word that hunger and thirst after the word, that feed upon your scriptures each and every day, and especially in the corporate gathering of your people, Lord, because it is through these means that you promise to guard and protect your flock. And so might we be faithful, Lord, and we thank you that you are always faithful to us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.